Well, let me uh, welcome you all here again to Big Valley Grace and glad you're with us and welcome again to all of you watching online or those of you that are over in the venue. We're, we're glad that you are um, with us. Um, if you are visiting with us, one of the things that uh, we do here is we have a special uh, video of somebody in our church family. We go and film them and just kind of hear a little bit about their life and um, and this week's uh, is really, really uh, special, and we call it our Not Ashamed video, so check out the, 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 the Jumbotron. I have always enjoyed riding the bus. I used to be the postmaster of Salida, and Karen, my wife, would work at church, and so I would ride the bus, the transit, over to church, and then we would ride home together. I found that riding the bus gave me the opportunity to just connect with everyday people. After I retired in 2012, I started driving with Store Coachways. Little did I know that this would become my pulpit, my opportunity for sharing the gospel and sharing how God loves each and every person who crosses my path. I would meet all kinds of people. I'm picking up third grade students and taking them out to a wildlife preserve. I have the opportunity to pick up senior citizens. I pick up uh, our high school students and take them to Hume Lake. And I never know if that person, that age group, that group that I'm with, I will have the opportunity to say something about how I love God, how God is so good and so very wonderful to me. I was driving a group of people, took them to the casino, and on my way back, I got a call from another bus driver that a passenger had gotten on the wrong bus. So I picked up the passenger, I took the rest of the customers home, headed back to the yard, and little did I know that that would turn into an opportunity for me to invite Peter to our church to come and visit our men's ministry and to end up spending the evening praying with him. Each morning I uh, have to go out and pre-trip my bus and part of my pre-trip is my last inspection of the whole bus. And often I'm reminded that this is my bus. This is, this is my mission. These are people that God is entrusting to me, not only to drive the bus, but to serve for the day. That walk around the bus is my, okay God, here we go. Uh, you've given me a mission. You've given me an assignment today. I would really like to be a part of your plan. What do you need me to do? One of my fun things is I drive a football team to all their away games. The last thing that I do before we leave, I look at the players and I say, how do we win our game? And we all reply back, one play at a time. Well, that is the same way that I look at serving my Lord. That person that crosses my path, how do I serve God? One play at a time. So that is my story. And I hope that you, you will look for the opportunity. That person that crosses your path, how can I win the game? One person at a time. My name is Dennis Thompson, and I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And I get these uh, videos 
in advance, you know. And when I clicked on that and watched it, it just brought great joy to my heart. And he is one of the just great servants of our church, has served here for a lot of years. He reminds me of probably what um, Barnabas was like. Some of you know who Barnabas was in the scripture. And he was just a very encouraging man, and Dennis is an encouraging guy. He understands um, his role in the kingdom, that this is sacred work, what I'm going to do right now, but he understands that what he's doing is every bit as sacred. That as a follower of Jesus Christ, what he does is sacred. And he goes to work every day just representing Jesus Christ, and I'm grateful for uh, him. Well, here's the deal. I want to give a quick review of where we've been before we get into this week's message, because I know some of you are visiting with us, and it would just be rude and you know, not right if I just jumped into something and you didn't know where we were at. I, I've been to churches before on my vacation or whatever, and I'll go and sit down, and the preacher will just jump right in, and I have no idea where they've been. And so for 20 or 30 minutes, I'm trying to figure out, okay, where, where have they been? And I don't want you to feel that way. I want everybody to feel like they're apart. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible, one of the things that we do a lot here at Big Valley Grace is give away Bibles. And we give away really good Bibles, really quality Bibles. And if you don't have one, you can go into the altar room uh, here or over in the venue. Or if you're watching online or whatever, you can come down to the church and we'd love to give you a copy of the, the Word of God. But if you don't have one today, that's okay. All the verses will come up on the Jumbotron. Most of them will be inside uh, your, your program. Romans chapter 1 begins with the great Apostle Paul giving us a, a brief introduction uh, uh, to himself or of himself. He tells the Romans who he is. He tells the Romans what God's calling on his life was. He tells them about his great love for the gospel, the good news, Jesus that the gospel has the power to cleanse a man of his sin, that the gospel has the power to remove the wrath of God from a man's life, that the gospel has the power to change a person's eternal uh, destiny. Then he begins to unpack the reason why we all need the gospel. He shares the fact that we've all sinned, every one of us has been disobedient to God, that sin has corrupted all of our lives, that it has tainted everybody. And because we've all sinned, we all stand guilty and condemned before God. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 says, For all have sinned. It's one of the things that we all have in common in this room or common with those of you over in the venue, if you're watching online, it's one of many things that all of us have in common. We've all sinned. We've all thought things that were really crummy. We've done things that were crummy. We've said things that were crummy. We've all sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard, and his standard is perfection, and nobody in this room could stand up and say, wait a minute, pastor, I'm perfect. I've never had an evil thought. 
I've never done an evil deed. I've never said anything that's evil. Nobody could do that. We've all sinned. Jesus himself said this in John chapter 3. He said, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. This is Jesus talking. He's telling us why he came. He's going to let us in on why we celebrate Christmas. Why we put trees up in our homes and lights on them and wreaths on our door. He didn't come to bring condemnation. It's not why he came. But he came to save the world. That's people through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And when you look at those two verses right there, John 3, 17 and 18, this is exactly what Paul is saying in the first three chapters of of Romans. He's laying out the case that because we've all sinned, we all stand condemned before God, which is why we all need Jesus. He's the only one that can save us from the judgment of God to come. Jesus didn't come to condemn us. He didn't need to because we were already condemned. Sin had condemned us all. Jesus didn't have to be born in a little town called Bethlehem and grow up to go, hey, you're all condemned. That's why God sent me. No. We were already condemned. The whole you know, message of the Bible from Genesis chapter 3 on is, you're sinful, you're evil, you're wicked. I will send a Messiah. I will send the Savior. I will send Jesus. We were already condemned because of our sins. Jesus came to free us from the penalty of our sin, the condemnation that comes because of our sin. Now, when we get into our text today, I I want you to know that many scholars believe that this might be the the most difficult section in all of uh, Romans to, to understand. So it's been my prayer that this week, that somehow as I walk through this, that maybe God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the great teacher, would really open your eyes to um, the truth that God wanted you to know when he had Paul write this. Um, this will be a, a real different kind of sermon for me. Uh, this is a real technical sermon. And so um, I really hope and pray that somehow when the words leave my mouth, By the time they hit your ears, God does something with them, okay? So, um, two weeks ago, we looked at the end of Romans chapter 2, where Paul tells the Jews, he's talking to Jews at the end of Romans chapter 2, that just because they were Jews, just because they were God's chosen people, and just because God gave them the law, God gave them the Old Testament. You know, you've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You got all the Old Testament law. You got all of the prophets, the, the Jeremiah's and the Ezekiel's and the Isaiah's. Just because they were given the law that God spoke through them and gave them the, 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 the law, and just because they had been circumcised, these things don't get you into heaven. 
Just because you're a Jew, just because you're one of God's chosen people, just because he's given you the law, just because you've been circumcised, all those things don't make you right with God. Sin has tainted everybody, whether you're Jewish or whether you're a Gentile. All of these things were just basically outward symbols. So Paul makes the assumption that the Jews, after hearing this, after what he just said in Romans chapter 2, might believe that there's absolutely no difference between them and Gentiles. But that wasn't Paul's point. It's not what he was saying. He's just making the point that none of us are innocent before God. And so what Paul's going to do in our text today is he's going to anticipate what a Jewish person who would have been in the church that day when that letter was written. Remember, Paul was not there in person. He writes a letter to a, a, a group of Jewish people or Christians in Rome, and many of them were Jews. The church, I'm sure, had a lot of unbelievers in it that were Jewish. And so the preacher would have gotten up, he would have read Romans chapter 1, if you will, Romans chapter 2, and now Paul is going, okay, what questions will the Jewish person have based upon what I just said? Based upon the fact that I just said that everybody's doomed and going to hell. Just based upon the fact that I've said just because you're Jewish doesn't make you right with God. Just because you've been given the law doesn't make you right with God. Just because you've been circumcised doesn't make you right with God. What will the Jewish person, what questions will he have? And Paul is anticipating those questions. And so Paul is going to ask those questions and he's going to answer those questions. And it's very interesting. And as I said, it's my hope that you really get something deep out of these questions and answers. So the first question Paul imagines that the Jewish person might ask Paul if he were there in person is this. Okay, so being Jewish doesn't mean anything. Okay, so we're God's chosen people, the law. We were given the law. That doesn't save us. Circumcision doesn't save us. What advantage then is there to being a Jew? Or what it, you know, value is there in circumcision? In other words, what's the advantage of being a part of God's chosen people? What, what's the advantage of being given the Old Testament? What's the advantage of being a teacher of the law? What's the advantage of being circumcised? In other words, why be religious? I mean, if going to church or synagogue or working hard to obey the law and being circumcised and observing all the Jewish holidays doesn't make things right between God and me, why should I even do them? Is there any advantage in being a Jew over a pagan if we all stand guilty before God? I'm one of his chosen people. The law was given to us. I've been circumcised and you're telling me I stand just as guilty as some crummy, rotten pagan? What advantage is there to being a Jew? And it's a really good question. And Paul gives them the answer to this first question in Romans chapter 3, verse 2. Look there. He said, well, there's much in every way. There's lots of advantages. First of all, they, the, the Jews, have been entrusted with the very, 
words of God. Paul says that there's a, a great privilege to being a Jew. It's something you ought to be proud of. There's a huge advantage to it. Now, it didn't mean that they were automatically saved, but it did bring with them many privileges that us Gentiles didn't have. And Paul mentions one of the big ones right out of the gate. The Jews were entrusted with the very words of God. And in this case, it would have been the Old Testament. Now, the Greek words for first of all in your text means chiefly or of, of primary importance. So Paul is saying that the greatest thing that the Jews had going for them was the fact that God trusted them with his word. This was an honor. And when we get to Romans chapter nine, I'll talk more about this, but I, I do wanna share with you two thoughts as it relates to this. God actually entrusting the Jews with the word of God. And the first one is this. If you have the word of God, you have the truth about salvation. They were the, the first group of people that had the truth about salvation. They had the, the writings of, of, of uh, Moses, those first five books, Genesis. They knew Genesis 1 and 2. They knew about Genesis chapter 3. They knew about sin. They knew that God had promised to send a Savior, a Messiah. They were the very first people to know the truth about them, that they were sinful, and they were the first to know about salvation. In John chapter 5, Jesus makes this statement to a group of Jewish religious leaders. He says, you diligently study the scriptures. Talking about the Old Testament. You study them. You read them. You memorize them. Because you think that by them you possess eternal life. In other words, you think that simply because you have the Old Testament and that you study it, that somehow that makes you golden. But somehow that makes everything right between you and God. And Jesus goes on to say, these are the scriptures that testify about me. The Old Testament was about the Savior, the Messiah that everybody needed. Yet you refuse to come to me and have life. You have the truth about God, the truth about you, the truth about sin and salvation. You've got the truth. And you search the scriptures and you study the scriptures, but you miss the whole point of the scriptures. The point of the scriptures, Jesus says, is about me. The Messiah, the, 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 the Savior. Paul writes to a young man named Timothy. And he says this to him in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, you, that's Timothy, have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood. And he's not talking about the New Testament. That's not done yet. He's talking about the Old Testament. Okay? You've been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood. He had a, a godly mother and a godly grandma who took the Old Testament Scriptures that were given to the Jews and he, he was taught them. And they, 
The scriptures have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. It's the scriptures that told us the truth. And because he had a, a wise grandmother and a wise mother, these, these people poured their life into Timothy and the Old Testament, and Timothy understood it and got the wisdom to know, I'm sinful, and I need the Savior. The Jews didn't get that. They just thought, hey, we got it. And because we got it, I guess that's good enough. No. One of the great advantages of being a Jewish person is that they were the first to be given the truth about God, about sin, about salvation, all those things. Now, the second, uh, oh, well, let me do this. The, the, the second thought I wanna, I wanna give you is this, is that if you have the word of God, you need to share it with others. God gave the Jews the truth. He gave them the scriptures so that they'd be his mouthpiece. God wanted the, the Jews to be missionaries to the rest of the world. He wanted them to be his evangelists. He, he wanted them to go and tell the rest of the world the, the story. God didn't give them the truth that they would say, okay, we got it. We ain't sharing it with anybody else. He chose them in his sovereignty. He gave them the truth. And he wanted them to be, though, the, the missionaries to the rest of the world. God loves everybody. God loves the whole world. He loves all people. He chose the Jews, gave them the truth about salvation, that they would be the ones who would go out and tell others the truth about God, about sin, about condemnation, about heaven, hell, and the Messiah, Jesus. But they fumbled the ball horribly as it related to this. They got the truth and kept it to themselves. And one of the stories in the Old Testament that I think best illustrates this is the story of Jonah. God says to Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go to this town called Nineveh and I want you to tell the people of Nineveh about me. I want you to tell them about their sin and the condemnation that comes with sin, the wrath of God that will come with sin. I want you to go and tell them the truth, Jonah. And Jonah said, I ain't doing it. Why would I want to go to a bunch of pagans? Why would I want to go to a bunch of, you know, evil people and tell them about you, God? I don't want to do that. And so Jonah runs from God, and we all know the story. God so loved people that he has Jonah swallowed by some big fish and he spits him up on the beachhead and says, now go tell him about me. Go tell him about sin. Go tell him about redemption. Go. And he does it. All of us would have done it after spending time in the belly of a fish, but he, he doesn't really have the best attitude doing it. He really doesn't want to do it. But that story, I think, really illustrates the heart of 
most Jews at this time, they were given the truth, which was a great honor. They knew the truth about them and sin and salvation. And God wanted them to be those, be the very ones who got to share the message. I mean, that's an unbelievable honor. But they blew it on both uh, accounts. They, they thought that since they were God's chosen people, you know, they must be God's only people. And that wasn't, that wasn't the, 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 the truth. Now, the second question that Paul deals with is found in verse 3 of Romans 3. He says, well, what if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? So, so what's this question all about? Well, the first question was about uh, the Jews' uniqueness, okay? Is there any advantage to being Jewish? This one has to deal with God's faithfulness. Paul, Paul's imagining the, the Jews thinking to themselves, okay, well, hold on here a second. Well, what if some of them, what if the Jewish people didn't trust God and they, they didn't have any faith? Well, what if some of them, the Jewish people, actually denied, you know, denied God's existence? Will their lack of faith or belief in God nullify God's faithfulness? Beloved, this is a great question. I mean, obviously there were some Jews who weren't faithful to God, right? We can read about them in the Old Testament. I mean, the whole... Old Testament is just filled with unfaithful Jewish people. So will God give up on the Jewish nation because some of them are unfaithful? Will God rescind all of his promises to the Jews because they didn't follow him? Okay, you're, Paul, you're saying that we're all sinful, we're all evil, we've all turned our back on God. Well, does that mean he's going to turn his back on us? Is he not going to be faithful to us anymore? You see how, how, it's, how it's a good question that a Jewish person might, might ask. Here's the thinking. God made promises to the Jews. We all know that. The Old Testament is full of them. Now, did the Jews keep their part of the bargain? No, they didn't. Then can God break his promise to them because they were unfaithful? That's another way of looking at verse three here. Well, in verse four, Paul gives them the answer. He says, not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. This is one of Paul's favorite expressions. The, the literal translation is no, no, no. It means God forbid. It's the strongest statement you can make in the Greek language. It means absolutely not. Beloved, just because the Jews were unfaithful to God doesn't mean that God was now going to be unfaithful to them. Paul says, even if every person in the world is a liar, if every Jew is a liar, if every Jew is faithful, God is still true. God is still faithful. In other words, God's faithfulness doesn't depend upon mankind's obedience. Can I get an amen? Okay, there you go. Beloved, there are basically two kinds of promises in the Bible. There are conditional promises and there are unconditional promises. Okay, conditional promises are promises that say, if you do something, then God will do something. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The condition is, you call upon the name of the Lord, and his thing is, he'll save. If you don't do your part, he doesn't do his part. If you don't call upon the name of the Lord, 
You ain't going to be saved. You see, the Christian life, the Christian worldview of things is this. What we do is all the sinning. That's all we do. And God does all the saving. Your role is sin. God's role is saving. But he won't save you unless you call upon him. Maybe one of the more famous passages is found in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, where God says, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, seek my will, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their lands. The condition is, is if God's people humble themselves, if they pray, if they seek God's will, uh, uh, he promises to do his part. He'll heal their land. But there are also many promises that are totally unconditional. These are the promises that Paul is talking about here in our text. These are some of the promises that God made to the Jews that regardless of what the Jews did, God was going to fulfill them. For instance, in the Old Testament, God promises, I'm going to send a Messiah. I'm going to send a Savior. I'm going to send the Gospel. I'm sending Jesus. Did that promise have anything to do with whether the Jews were faithful or not? No, they all could have been totally unfaithful and the Messiah was still coming. It didn't matter whether they were faithful or not. God made a promise and it wasn't based on any condition. I'm gonna send a Messiah. Another unconditional promise would be this. God says, I'm gonna send Jesus back someday. You think you can stop that by your unfaithfulness? <laughs> the whole world could be unfaithful. And Jesus is coming back. In other words, it has nothing to do with whether you're faithful or not. And these are the promises that Paul is talking about here. God promises are, are based on his character, not man's performance. And this ought to bring you a tremendous amount of of peace, knowing that there are these promises found in the word of God that it doesn't matter whether people are faithful or not. All that matters is, is he is faithful. He's faithful. Now, now I'm gonna go to question number three here, okay? And you find it in verse five. He says, um, if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? And he's using human uh, argument here. Now, th this is one of the most difficult verses to understand, okay? A lot of scholars don't agree. A lot of really good people don't agree on what is being said here. But let me tell you what, what I, I think is being said, okay? I believe that Paul is talking about faulty logic here. And he's gonna point out that this logic doesn't make any sense. And the logic kind of goes like this. The Jews are gonna say, Paul, you just said that God is faithful to us even when we're unfaithful to him. Therefore, when I'm unfaithful and I sin, God in his faithfulness forgives me and when I'm unfaithful a bunch and sin a bunch, God is 
faithful and he forgives me a bunch. So in essence, every time I sin, it makes God look good. Because it shows just how faithful he is. It shows how how forgiving he is. Therefore, God shouldn't be upset with me when I sin because my sin actually makes God look good. And if my sin makes God look good and makes God more gracious, why should he judge me for it? I'm actually doing God a favor. You see the logic? I mean, if God is faithful, even when I'm not, then I'll just not be faithful. And then God will show up in miraculous ways and man, I'm gonna make him look good in my unfaithfulness. In other words, Paul's saying, why should God condemn me? Why would I stand condemned before God? Because I'm actually doing God a favor. Because when I'm unfaithful in sin, God shows what a great and awesome and mighty God he is and how faithful he is. So really, God ought to thank me for my sin. That's the logic here in verse five. And there were a lot of Paul's critics at the time that were accusing him of teaching that. And so he says this in verse six. He answers the question in verse six. He says, certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge anybody? If that were true, then God couldn't judge a soul. Paul says, away with, with such thoughts. I want you to imagine a guy who goes out and commits adultery over and over again, and yet his wife remains faithful to him. So one day the husband says to his wife, you know, honey, my unfaithfulness just makes you look better and better because you're staying faithful to me even though I'm unfaithful to you, and it shows what a great woman you, you really are. So one day his wife finally says, you know, I've had enough. I'm not gonna take this anymore. I'm through with you. And the husband responds by saying, well, what gives? Why are you mad at me? My unfaithfulness just shows how patient you are. In fact, instead of being upset with me, you ought to thank me for my adultery because it actually shows what a great person you are. It's crazy, huh? When you hear it like that, it kind of goes, oh, that is dumb. Yeah. That's pretty dumb. And so the argument that, well, I'll just sin and it makes God look good, that's just dumb. That's just a a, a dumb thing. Paul is destroying this, this logic here. If God doesn't have any standards and he allows everybody to get away with sin, well, then how can he be fair? If sin results in doing good, then God can't judge anybody because everybody would be doing good every time they sinned, right? Question number four. Find in verse seven of Romans three. Someone might argue, and this is kind of an extension of what he just talked about. If my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, Well, why am I condemned as a sinner? (laughs) Paul's saying, let's take your logic a step further. If all the bad things I do makes God happy because it gives him a chance to show his grace off, then why would God condemn me? Why would God be angry with me? 
And if the truth of God has increased through my sin, then why am I going to be judged for it? I mean, after all, can I be sentenced to hell for something that brings God glory? How could God call me a sinner if my sin shows what a forgiving person he is? And Paul answers this in verse 8. He says, their condemnation is deserved. Paul is using what philosophers call, you take it to its logical, illogical conclusion. In other words, Paul pushes the argument to the extreme to show how stupid it really is. That's what he's doing here in these verses. What Paul is saying is that God doesn't need our evil to contrast his goodness. That's basically what he's saying. God's good and he doesn't need your evil to somehow make his goodness look good. Imagine you, you go to your doctor because you've got you know, strep throat. And he says to you, hey, I've got some good news and I've got some great news. The good news is that you only have a mild case of strep throat. The, the great news is that I've got a new wonder drug that'll cure the most severe cases of it. So without a doubt, I can cure yours no problem. I mean, this will wipe out your strep throat ASAP. Now, what if you said, wow, in that case, I think I'll wait a few days before I take that wonder drug until my strep throat develops into a really severe case so that way I can demonstrate just how powerful the new drug really is. When you hear it like that, you go, yeah, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? No, it doesn't. God doesn't want you to go out and be more evil. Because the more evil you are, you see, man, that's just going to make God look all the better. That's crazy. That's just, that's crazy thinking. I think the, a lot of people view God as some old grandfather up in the sky who's loving and harmless. I've actually had people in my office on many occasions, some, sometimes here, who have said to me something like this. I know that the choice I'm making is wrong. I know that what I'm going to do is sinful, but I'm gonna do it anyway because I know God will forgive me. And when I hear that, I always kinda go, would you please leave my office real quickly? Or I'll back away very slowly because I don't wanna be around if God decides to do something that he ought to do. There's the door, and if you'd like to attend another church, why don't you go there, because I don't need you in this building when God decides to do something about your evil. Think that through. To be that presumptuous on the grace of God. Oh, I know that's wrong, Pastor. I, I know it's evil. I know it's going to destroy my life, my family's life, my children's life. I, I know all that. I'm going to do it anyway because God will forgive me. <laughs> Let me tell you something. No one's going to stand before me. But anybody who has that attitude, you don't know Christ. And I know you could argue with me. 
There's no way you could understand the story revealed between these two leather-bound covers. That you could understand the story of sin, the Messiah, what God's Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, accomplished on the cross. Understand just how totally goofed up we were, lost, doomed, headed for hell, and the only way we were ever going to make it into heaven was through, through Christ and be that cavalier about sin. You don't know him. You might stand before God someday and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this in your name? Yeah, uh-huh. And Jesus is going to look at you and say, I never knew you. Oh, you knew a lot about me. But you never knew me. And he might point back to that moment when you were confronted with your evil and you were so cavalier about it. Maybe that won't happen. I don't know. All I know is is that too many believers are pretty cavalier about sin. Question number five. He's now going to turn the question on himself or on Christians. And that is this, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? In other words, are, are we Christians in and of ourselves? Paul was Jewish, so he's not, obviously not talking about himself. He's, he's already dealt with that. He's talking about those that were believers, those that were of the way, those that were Christians, that were followers of Christ. Are we Christians in and of ourselves any better than uh, other groups of people that Paul, you know, is already shown to be condemned before God? Or as Dr. MacArthur said, are we intrinsically superior to those others? Were we saved because our basic human nature was on a higher plane than others? And Paul answers that in verse 9. He says, not at all. We've already made the charge that all Jews, all of them, and all Gentiles, all of them alike, are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one seeks God. All have turned away, everybody. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, nobody. And if God doesn't come back, we're gonna look at some of those passages next week as we wrap up this first part of Romans, which is the dilemma, the problem, sin. And when you read those verses right there, you have to ask yourself a question, a good one, one that every Christian has to wrestle around with, and that is this. If nobody's righteous, if nobody seeks after God, if everybody is goofed up, how do we all get here, Christian? How is it that you're saved? 
How in the world are you here right now worshiping God if everybody is goofed up, if there's nobody righteous and nobody seeks after God? Why are you here right now? And we're going to answer that question in more detail next week, Lord willing. Beloved, what Paul is saying here is this. Everybody stands guilty and condemned before God because everybody has sinned. Everybody. Paul is saying that when it comes to sin, nobody has an advantage. Jews or Gentiles were all guilty. Yes, it was a fantastic thing for the Jews to have been, you know, uh, called out by God's sovereignty and made his, you know, chosen people. Yes, it was an incredible um, thing to, for them to have been chosen to, to you know, handle and the law and be given the, the law. And yes, it was a great thing to have been circumcised and be given that as a sign. Th- those were all great things, but none of them Saved them. None of them. Coming to church is a good thing. Being baptized is a good thing. Taking communion is a good thing. Putting money in the basket's a good thing. Singing in the choir is a good thing. Playing in the band's a good thing. Mentoring young people is a good thing. But none of those things save you. Not a one of them. Those things don't cancel out sin. In 1 John chapter 1, the great apostle says, if we claim to be without sin, we just deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Everybody here knows that they're sinful. You may not call it sin, that's kind of a Bible word, a biblical word, but you know you're goofed up. Everybody here. There's nobody that would stand up and say, hey, I'm without sin. I've never said anything that I knew was wrong. I never did anything that I knew was wrong. I never thought about anything that I knew was wrong. Nobody would would do that. I, I I had a guy once in my office who did that. And when I asked for his cell phone so I could call his wife, he got all nervous. You know, because we could have settled that issue in about 20 seconds. So to say you don't have any sin, the the truth isn't in you, and that's a capital T. There may be some truth in you. Two plus two is four. That's truth. Four plus four is eight. That's truth. But that's a truth with a small t. Truth with a capital T is, is that the truth is not in you. Jesus Christ is not in you. You do not know the gospel. You do not know the Messiah. You do not know the Savior. You do not know the truth. Because the truth means you get it. You understand sin. And John goes on and says, but if we confess our sin... If we agree with God, God, I understand that my sin has separated me from you. I understand that sin brought with it condemnation. I understand the truth about me and sin. I understand that there isn't anything I can do to fix the problem of sin. Giving all my money away in an offering, singing in the choir, doing all these things. None of them will take the problem of sin away. I understand, God 
that I am lost in my sin and I'm confessing it to you right now. If you confess your sins, then at that moment, see this is one of those conditional promises. He's faithful and he's just and he'll forgive you of your sin and he'll purify you from all the unrighteousness in your life. And once your sins have been forgiven, and once you've been purified, once you're no longer unrighteous anymore, guess what? You just entered into a new relationship with the Father. Because all of a sudden, he sees his son in your life, and his son was perfectly righteous. Perfectly righteous. Now God looks down and looks at your life, and he sees his son, which makes you righteous. His son makes you righteous. You, you don't make yourself righteous. <laughs> there are churches that actually teach that kind of blasphemy. That you can make yourself righteous. You can make yourself good enough so God looks down and goes, wow, you're a great person. Come on into heaven. Are you kidding me? That is just from the pit of hell teaching. It is evil. It is wicked to its core. There's only one way you're made righteous and that's through a relationship with Jesus Christ period do your good works matter absolutely they matter but they don't matter as it relates to your salvation that is simply through a relationship with Jesus Christ that's it because he was righteous he was holy he was perfect and here's this great moment where John says you just give up your life to him you recognize he's the king and you're but the subjects. You, you, you recognize that I now have a king who has given me instructions on how I'm to live. And you saw a great example of that in Dennis Thompson. He knows who the king is. He knows who he's working for. He may have a store thing on his, you know, shirt, but he has a worldview of the king and he understands he does his job as if Jesus Christ were his boss. Christian, if you understood that, it would revolutionize your jobs and where you work and the things that you do if you only understood the objective of the king who you serve. You don't have to like your human boss but you need to think like the Bible wants you to think you don't work for him you work for him you're his mouthpiece you're, you're the salt and the light out there wherever he's got you he's got a guy driving around on a bus but he gets it he surrendered his life over to God and God came into his life and now he said you're the CEO of my life now <laughs> Not me. You're it. Now, does he live it out perfectly? No. Does anybody down here on earth live it out perfectly? No. I blow it so often, it's unbelievable. But that's why the Bible says, hey, look, Christian, love covers a multitude of sins, doesn't it? We're going to blow it down here. All you can do is just go ask for forgiveness and, the, you know, and you're free. 
You're free. And they're free if they say, I forgive you. Move on with your life. People just hang on to stuff. And it's because they really don't understand this relationship that the king has told us how we're to live. I look at that video and I think to myself, that guy got it. He understands this whole idea. He confessed his sins. He knew that Jesus came into his life. He knew that he had another worldview that he was to live by. And he lives by it. And some of you are here, maybe you're over in the venue, maybe you're watching online, and here's the deal. God has opened your eyes to the truth that in and of yourself, like Paul, there's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing special about me. Nothing. I was a condemned sinner. But there came a moment when the Lord opened my eyes to truth. And maybe God's doing that in your life right now. It's, it's the Lord doing it. It has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with the great music. It has everything to do with God. He brought you here today. He had you watch online right now. That he could draw you to himself. And here's this great moment in the life of every human being is whether you will humble yourself and say, God, here's my life. Forgive me of my sin. That's a hard place to get. And some people go, nope, I'm digging in. No one's gonna tell me how to live my life. especially some ancient book. I live my life the way I'm gonna live it. I'm gonna do my life the way I wanna do it. And some will do that. I did that for a couple decades. But then there came a moment where I got on my knees before God and I understood it, how lost I was. And I had no, I, I, I just, God, take my life. For some of you, that's happening in your life right now. I know it. I know it. So I'm going to pray here, and we've got a room right over here called the altar room. And maybe you'd like to go in there and say, hey, help me. I need Christ in my life. And some of our pastors, some of our elders will be in there, some of our spiritual leaders, and they'd love to pray with you. Maybe you just want a copy of the Bible. You just want to read the word of God for yourself. You could go into the altar room. We have an altar room over in the, the venue. And this could be uh, one of those great moments in your life. To walk out of this place knowing that you and God are okay. There's nothing greater than that. You would surrender your life over to God. Greatest moment of my life. Changed my life. Unbelievable moment to know that I'm okay with God because I know his son. I know the Messiah. I know the Savior. I know who was born in that little town of Bethlehem. I get it. 
And I'm very thankful to God every day that he opened my eyes to that truth. Why don't you stand over in the venue? Why don't you stand? Father, thank you, Lord, for uh, today. Man, I, I just so love our choir and I love our orchestra. Just unbelievable men and women who love you, God. They love you and it spills over into a love for their church. That music is just so sacred and God-honoring. And Wow, I love it. Lord, I'm thankful for the fellowship that we've had today. Last night, too, man, it's just great. I know next hour we're gonna hear great sacred music and fellowship, but thank you for this moment. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Without this book, we don't have anything to sing about. We got nothing to preach about. We got nothing to fellowship about. But because you left us your word, God, um, we have a reason to come and rejoice. I pray for those whose souls were stirred today, that they would make their way into the altar room, that they would settle the most important issue of life. What are you gonna do with Jesus Christ? Thank you, Jesus, for your goodness to us as a church, and I pray these things in your name. And all the God's people said, amen. Hey, Lord bless you.